Good morning, my dearly beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning we return to Solomon's quest for the greatest good in the book of Ecclesiastes. Over the past few weeks, you'll recall, we have walked with Solomon as he has pursued his quest by various means, by personal experience in chapters 1 and 2, and by general observation in chapters 3 to 6 of the book of Ecclesiastes. And now we're at that stage in the, in the book where Solomon begins to reflect on all he's found. It's quite a landmark division between the end of chapter 6 and the start of chapter 7 in many ways. This, of course, is the start of the next great section, the final great section of the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon now pursues his quest by mature reflection. And he's going to start to digest all the information which he has accumulated in the previous six chapters by experience, by observation, and make deductions from that information about things which are beneficial in this life, things which are not beneficial, and how he might, of course, further his quest for satisfaction, for ultimate satisfaction, and for the greatest good. Now, chapter 7 is not just the beginning of the next phase, however. It, it is the beginning of the next phase, but not just the beginning, because you may have noticed as we read through this chapter the appearance of the word thy, thou, thyself, which of course tells you that this is another of the direct excitation sections. You'll remember the first seven or eight verses of chapter 5 were a section of direct excitation conspicuous by the use of thee and thy, the second person, whereas everywhere else in the book of Ecclesiastes, we've got the third person or the first person. But here we have Solomon in this chapter speaking to the ecclesia about observations for ecclesial life to the saints. And he uses, well, verse 9, be not hasty in thy spirit. Verse 10, say not thou what is the cause. Verse 16, be not righteous over much, neither make thyself overwise. Why should thou destroy that? You see, thee and thou conspicuous by their occurrence through here. The other factor, of course, is in this chapter we don't have the phrase under the sun. That phrase which occurs all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes, except in the direct exhortation sections. What you have, in fact, is the very opposite in verse 11. At the end of the verse there, wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. That see the sun. That is, those who can see a purpose in the apparently meaningless issues of this life. Because they realize there's more to life than just what they might see going on about them. Those that see the sun, rather than those that are, as you'll see at the end of chapter 6, at... Um, Chapter, seven, sorry, chapter 8, verse 9, those that are under the sun. Well, this morning we're going to consider just the first 12 verses, really, of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Because this is a section in which Solomon describes the things that are better. And the word better occurs all the way through this section. In fact, the lead-in to chapter 7, verse 1, is in chapter 6 and verse 12. He's built the position, really, by which he can now begin to talk about what's better and what's worse. Make deductions about what he's seen. Because in chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes, in verse 12, he says, Who knoweth? For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? And the word good 
in Ecclesiastes 6 and verse 12 is the Hebrew word tob, which means good, in the widest possible sense. And so you'll find it translated pleasant, or favorable, or precious, or in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, better. Better. Whose knows, he says, what is better for man in this life? And that's the, the introduction in chapter 6, verse 12, to what he's now going to say in chapter 7. And you might have noticed as we read chapter 7, verse 1, a good name is better. In fact, the word good in chapter 7, verse 1, and the word better are the same. It's top both times. A better name is better than precious ointment. Verse 2, it's better to go to the house in the morning. Verse 3, sorrow's better than laughter. Verse 5, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise, and so on. There's seven or eight better things in these first 12 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, which Solomon particularly draws our attention to as those in the Ecclesia. In fact, this whole section, this whole first dozen verses, really is poetic. In the Hebrew, in the original language, it is a section of poetry. Wherever he makes these contrasts between one thing that is better against a thing which is inferior, the word better occurs first in the verse. So if you, for example, were to get out an interlinear version, you would see in verse, well, verse uh, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 11, the word better appears first in the Hebrew in all of those verses. And in addition to that, there is some rhyming in the Hebrew language which occurs through here. So for example, in verse 1, he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. The Hebrew word for name is the word shem. The Hebrew word for ointment is the Hebrew word shemin. So you can see he's making a play upon words, and that occurs a number of times through this section in a sort of poetic manner, not quite like English poetry, but you can appreciate the point. He is taking certain I suppose, liberties with the language as he writes these things to make his point. And what, is Solomon, and what Solomon does in this section is, of course, to qualify some of the comments that he's been making previously. In chapter 6, for example, chapters 5 and 6, he considered wealth, that posterity and riches aren't always good. They might be a blessing of God, but if you participate with them, you'll never ever be satisfied because, as we said the other night, lust can only be fed, it can never be satiated. And the more you get, the more you want. So riches, though they might be a blessing, aren't unmixed good. But when you come to chapter 7, he points out the contrast, that adversity is not always bad. Adversity, which, might, which you might believe to be, the chastening of God is not always bad. Though we don't look for it, we might not enjoy it when it comes, it does develop a character that really couldn't be developed any other way. Well, let's look at it then. Chapter 7 and verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, look, I'm not going to have time, brothers and sisters, this morning to turn up quotes, because we've got a even these dozen verses. It's going to take us a little while. So I'm just going to, I'm going to read you them out, and I'd just expect you to note them if you want them, but we're not going to have time to turn anything up. A good name is better than precious ointment, he says. The precious ointment that he speaks about generally was olive oil, 
which was perfumed by being boiled together with other ingredients. So they'd thicken it and they'd, they'd give it an aroma by boiling olive oil with myrrh or cassia, one of these sorts of things to give it a fragrance. In Bible times, the ointment was used for anointing prophets, priests, kings, any form of anointing or consecration. And so you read in Psalm 133 in verse 2 of the precious ointment upon the head, running down Aaron's beard. That's the ointment that we're talking about here, this precious ointment that we read of here. Generally, of course, these ointments were stored in alabaster boxes or alabaster jars, which would keep them pure and, and, and stop them degrading, such to the extent, of course, that after a number of years, these, these ointments actually improved with age. They became more fragrant with age and became very, very valuable. You could get alabaster jars of ointment which were worth tens of thousands of dollars in today's money. And he says here that a good name is better than that. Good name, of course, meaning a good reputation. By implication, a good reputation, I suppose, is a fragrance even more pervasive than perfume, than good perfume. In Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and verse 3, he says that the bride says to the groom, Thy name is as ointment poured forth, therefore do the virgins love thee. You see? A good name really is like good, good ointment, or in this case, better than good ointment. There is, of course, a classic illustration of this verse in Scripture, which if you haven't got on your margin, you really ought to have. It's in Matthew 26, between verses 6 and 13. Because there was a time, of course, near the Lord's death in the house of Bethany, where Mary took an alabaster box of very, very precious ointment, and she poured it on the Lord's head as he sat at the table, didn't he? And there was a dispute amongst those disciples because that ointment was worth a lot of money. This could have been sold, they said, for 300 pence and given to the poor. Now, one of the parables in Matthew, the parable of the laborers, he describes the fact that the laborers worked for a penny a day. So 300 pence would be something like a year's wages, twenty dollars or $30,000 in today's money. And she poured it out in a few minutes on the Lord's head as he sat at the table. And there was a fuss. And Jesus turned to the disciples and said, in Matthew 26 and verse 13, I say unto you, wheresoever the gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. A good name is better than precious ointment. And for 2,000 years, brothers and sisters, her example, the example of Mary in that little house, has been an inspiration to believers to give that extra little bit of service for the truth at whatever cost. Interesting, you know, because when you come to the John record of the house of Bethany, in John chapter 12, you find that it was Judas that began that dispute amongst the disciples. He thought it should have been given to the poor because... He kept the bag, and he took some of what went into the bag. And therefore, he saw a certain commission disappearing as she poured that ointment out. Not because he cared for the poor, because he was a thief. He despised the use of the ointment. And therefore, in John chapter 17 and verse 12, he also got himself a name. The son of perdition. Immortalized for 2,000 years in the sight of all believers. 
the son of perdition, because he despised the ointment. And Solomon goes on in verse 1, and he says, not only is a good name better than precious ointment, but, and the English doesn't capture it here, but it ought to be better the day of death than the day of one's birth. The word better occurs again in the verse here, in between, I suppose, the word and and the word the. Better the day of death than the day of one's birth. And you might look at that statement and say, well, how can that possibly be? What does Solomon mean when he says, better is the day of your death than the day of your birth? When he goes on, for example, in chapter 9 and verse 4 of Ecclesiastes and says that a, that a living dog is better than a dead lion. How can death be better than birth if a dog is better than a dead lion? You've got to understand the second statement here in verse 1 in the context of the first. For a believer, when we die, really, it's the closure of a lifetime of character development, isn't it? Our death marks the final chapter, if you like, in a life of character development. And we die, God willing, with a better character than we're born with. There is an improvement in our life. We die with a better character than we're born with. And therefore, in Revelation 14 and verse 13, John says, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labours, and their works do follow them. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. In Revelation 3 verse 5, Of course, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name. From the book of life. And there's your answer isn't it? Why are the dead more blessed than the living. In the same way that a good name is better than precious ointment. Because the dead and the Lord have a name don't they? It's in the book. It is better than precious ointment. That is a very very precious book. And that name will exist long after. The last trace of that ointment is gone. So when we talk about having a good reputation brothers and sisters. It's really a reputation before God, which is the crucial thing. But of course, if we are going to be effective in ecclesial life, we can't ignore the reputation we might also have before man. If you just come across the page, to, uh, across, turn the page to chapter 10 and verse 1, we've got this ointment mentioned again in the context of our reputation. Solomon says, dead flies cause the ointment of the, apothe the apothecary or the, or the chemist to send forth a stinking savour, so doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honour. And which of us hasn't fallen into that trap? One ill-advised comment, one ill-advised conduct can discredit years of otherwise consistent behaviour, can't it? And Solomon knew this personally in his life, didn't he? Because when he was old, he did divert from what had originally been straight and narrow. And all the wisdom that he was privy to, all the wisdom which he was esteemed for, was minimised in the eyes of people because his conduct was not consistent. So whilst our reputation with God is of paramount importance, we cannot ignore the reputation we might have with our fellows, particularly, of course, in the ecclesia of God. Verse 2. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. 
And here's the point about adversity not always being bad. You've got the picture here, you see, of two houses in the same street. And at one house we've got mourning, and at the other house we've got feasting. One house is a funeral, the other house is a wedding. In Old Testament times, funerals and weddings both went for seven days. You'll read in Judges 14 and verse 12, when Samson married this, this young girl of Timnath, he stayed there for seven days. And you'll read in Genesis 50 and verse 10 that when, Joseph, when Jacob died, Joseph and the family mourned for him for seven days. So weddings and funerals took, the entire ceremony took, if you like, seven days. And you have a choice in your street, perhaps as to which one you might go to. And naturally speaking, of course, we'd prefer to go to the wedding. Whereas in the nature of our probation, the house of mourning, in fact, might be the more beneficial house to attend. Because Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. You see, the sobriety of the funeral is more calculated to impress upon our minds the frailty of life than any possible merrymaking of a wedding. The living, he says, will lay it to his heart. Ironic, I suppose, what we're saying is that death makes you think about life. But it does, doesn't it? Because every funeral we might go to really is an anticipation of our own. Which is not true of a wedding, because we might not get married. You see? Death makes you think about life. The next funeral could be yours. And in the same way, in verse 3, he goes on, that sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Now, the word better there is not the same word better. It means right. The heart is made right or improved. Not that laughter is bad. We've already found in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 4, there is a time to weep. There is a time to laugh. Laughter is not bad. But this is a contrast, you see, being painted here in verse 3 between the sobriety of mind and, and I suppose, vacant hilarity. And Solomon is concerned to overturn the general bias of human nature that would avoid sorrow at almost any cost. Avoid any sort of hurt, any sort of anguish, at almost any cost. And this is what the world's like, of course, the world in which we live. This is what Hollywood's all about. Escape. Don't worry. Don't suffer any pain. It will all go away. Go travelling. Join a club of some kind, buy something, distract yourself in some way so that you don't have to confront issues which might upset you. And so he says in verse 4, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Why? Well, because in Proverbs 1 and verse 22, fools hate Knowledge. Fools hate knowledge, he says. They're blind to spiritual issues and they are content, well content, to remain that way. Whereas when Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7, in verses 9 and 10, he said to them, I rejoice, he said. I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now, 
What's godly sorrow? Well, godly sorrow is a sorrow that changes your character, that, that works repentance, he said, unto salvation. What's the sorrow of the world? Regret? Remorse? No change. That was the sorrow of Judas, you read in Matthew chapter 27. He regretted the fact that the Lord died. He did not change his basic character. Whereas the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road absolutely changed his basic character. A fundamental difference between the sorrow of the saints and the sorrow of the world. Godly sorrow, he says, works repentance unto salvation. Verse 5, he says, furthermore, it is better to hear the rebuke of a wise of the wise than for man to hear the song of fools. Now this is a serious verse because the, the rebuke that's being spoken of here is a serious or a grave warning. This is, this is not just a tap on the shoulder. The Bible speaks volumes about this, doesn't it? Proverbs 29 verse 1. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. If you do not accept reproof, it will be your destruction, he says. Proverbs 27 and verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. None of us likes to be censured. It's unpleasant, but sometimes it's essential, isn't it? Sometimes it is essential. He talks here about the wounds of a friend in, in Proverbs chapter 27. This is not, as I say, this is not just a tap on the shoulder. This is when the friend comes to you and says, Brother, you are wrong. You must change. This is not acceptable. Brother, sister, it doesn't matter. This is an earnest appeal by a dear friend. You see, there's, there's all different kinds of friends in the Bible. There's another kind of friend who says, Oh, don't tell on me and I won't tell on you. God doesn't expect this from you. God doesn't expect that. It will be all right. The ecclesia won't mind. That kind of friend is an enemy and a fool, he says in Proverbs. Real friends, real friends, make an effort to correct error. And so you find in Proverbs 27 and verse 17, iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. And you can't sharpen anything without friction. Nothing gets sharpened without friction. In Psalm 141 and verse 5, the psalmist says, Let the righteous smite me. It shall be kindness. Let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil, and my head shall not refuse it. Remarkable. Psalm 141 verse 5. Let the righteous smite me. You know, you know the greatest work of a friend in the Bible, I believe? 2 Samuel chapter 12. What did he say? Thou art the man. Thou art the man. Nathan to David after the sin of Bathsheba drastically and dramatically saved David's life and at that point probably from death as well. But what a wound it was. A scar on his life, frankly, for the rest of his days. Could never bring up his children the same after that. But a friend had to come and see him. But the song of fools... Well, here it is in verse 6. It's like the crackling of thorns under a pot. So is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity, he says. And more poetry here. 
Because the, in the Hebrew, the word pot rhymes with the word thorns. In the Hebrew, the word pot is the word sir. And the word thorns is the, is the word serum or serene. Moffat, he's tried to capture the rhythm as often he does. The laughter of fools is like nettles crackling under the kettles. And I suppose that's something like what the Hebrew would read. The laughter of fools is like the nettles crackling under the kettles. What's the point? The point is this. In eastern countries, people use charcoal to, to cook with. But they'd put charcoal under their fire, they'd, they'd heat it up, and it gave a lot of heat for a long time was charcoal. To rely on the advice of a fool, he says, is a bit like trying to boil a cauldron with dry thorns. Put them on the fire, they blaze up like tinder, they crack, they spark, they blow sparks all across the floor, and then they're gone before even the heat touches the pot. A great show, vanity, he says, utterly vain, pointless, meaningless use of resources. Just an irritation without substance. That's what fools are like. But even adversity has its limits. Even adversity, which might be beneficial for us, has its limits. Because verse 7 goes on, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. You see, there are some trials which come upon us, which in fact can reverse a life of development. The NIV for verse 7 says it like this, Extortion turns the wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Continual oppression, you see, even if a wise man will wear down a wise man. And when he sees the wicked getting away with things which he, in good conscience, would not participate in or, or, or can't get away with because of his conscience, he, of course, is tempted to follow. Why would he endure the suffering which no one else is enduring? Forgetting that, in his case, God sees him. God watches him. Now, we've talked about the development of the heart because at the end of verse 2, it says that the living will lay it to his heart. In verse 3, he says the heart is made better. In verse 4, he goes on and he says that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Here we have a degradation of the heart. A gift or a bribe, as it is, destroys the heart of this wise man. Taking, taking bribes blinds you to a godly interpretation of circumstances. You're forced to interpret the circumstances in the same way as the person who bribes you. And you're veiled, therefore. You've got to filter everything. You become complicated. You're tempted then to forget the principles of the truth. We're comforted by the words of 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. God will not tempt us beyond what we're able but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that we might be able to bear it. And we do pray that as wise brothers and sisters, that might always be the case, even if, even if the obvious way of escape is, as Paul says, to flee the problem. Well, verses 8, 9, and 10 are all proverbs concerning patience versus rashness about making a patient or an informed decision versus a rash or a proud decision. In verse 8 he says, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Better is the end of a thing. The word thing here is the word word. It means word. Better is the end of the argument than the beginning. Better is the end 
of the matter than the beginning. The point, you see, is see the issue through before you draw a conclusion. Hear the whole argument. Hear both sides of the story. And you know how easy it is to jump to conclusions, brothers and sisters. Proverbs 18 and verse 17, an excellent quotation. He that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbour cometh and searcheth him. Proverbs 18 and verse 17. Here's the NIV. The first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. And if you only ever heard half the story, you'd be grossly misaligned on your decision-making, wouldn't you? But that's true of everything in life, you know. The first Bible commentary you read sounds very plausible until another one questions it. And it's the tension there that often bears the truth. Do your homework. Don't let impatience make your decisions for you. It might take longer, but it's better. It's more secure. You'll get a better answer, especially if the issue involves some transgression. Verse 9. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. For anger, he says, rests in the bosom of fools. Proverbs 14 and verse 29. There's many, many Proverbs on, on the subject of anger. Proverbs 14 and verse 29 says that he that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. Why? Because James chapter 1 and verse 20 tells us that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Let every man, he says in the previous verse in James, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Classic example. David is about to kill Nabal when he's met on the road by Abigail. You know the story. It's in First of Samuel chapter 25. And you know what she said to him? It'll come to pass, she said. You can kill him. You've got an army. It's just him and his, his servants. You'll wipe them off the face of the earth, which is exactly, of course, what David intended to do. And she's down on her hands and knees before him, making obeisance to him, and she says, Look, David, it will come to pass that God will do you good, and he'll make you the king as he has promised. This, of course, being when David's running around the wilderness from Saul. Here is a woman who believes he's going to be king. She knew the promises. And she says... If you kill him, this will be a grief unto you because you've shed blood causeless and you've avenged yourself. It, you'll live to regret the day you take my foolish husband's head off. And he turned to her, put his sword back in, stop these wild men behind him, blessed be thy advice and blessed be thou. Remarkable, remarkable words from a remarkable woman and poured cold water on a very angry man. And here's another form of impatience. Verse 10. Say not there, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. This is the problem of the good old days. You know the problem of the good old days? You know what the big problem with the good old days is? They're invariably based on bad old memories. The good old days are never as good as they're pretended to be. Nothing wrong with a bit of nostalgia, of course, but when nostalgia hinders the progress of the present work, it's a problem. Every age has its difficulties. Every age has its opportunities. 
And you can't, you, you can't face the difficulties of this age by pining for an age gone by. It just doesn't help. Another classic illustration. Ezra chapter 3 and verse 12. 40,000 people came back from Babylon. They came back to Jerusalem. They built an altar. The next year they built a temple. Or at least they laid the foundation of the temple. And in verse 12 of Ezra chapter 3, they stopped the work. They had a great celebration like they used to in Solomon's day. Blue trumpets sang the same psalms because they had laid a concrete foundation or a stone foundation. But amidst the jubilation, there were tears of anguish from the old men because it wasn't as good as what it was in Solomon's day. It just wasn't going to be as good a temple as what it was in Solomon's day. Because, of course, it was a day of small things. They, they didn't have the money. They didn't have, they didn't have the resources that they had in Solomon's day. And the old men cried when the young men rejoiced. Till an old prophet stood up in Haggai chapter 2. How many of you saw this house in its former glory, he says? And how do you see it now? Isn't a thing of nothing in your eyes? And he ripped into them. He really hopped into them, was Haggai. And he was an old prophet. He had been there in Solomon's day. Be strong, ye people of the land, he said, for I am with you, saith Yahweh. That was his answer. God's with you, he said. And that's the issue. Forget about what it was like yesterday. Is Yahweh with us or not? The answer is yes, on with the work. Whatever size the temple might be. And Solomon concludes in verses 11 and 12 this little section with the subject of wisdom. Wisdom is good, better. That's the word better. Wisdom is better with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense. And money, the money here, of course, is the inheritance of verse 11. Wisdom is a defense, and your financial inheritance is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it, and money does not. You can't take it with you. You just can't take it with you. Why is wisdom better than an inheritance? Well, look, you can look at it. It's in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 14. He says, the merchandise of wisdom is better than silver and better than fine gold. Because, Proverbs 3 verse 17, she is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her. Wisdom offers something which riches just cannot offer. You want to see the real contrast between wisdom and money? We've looked at it once before. Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 26. But we haven't looked at it quite like this. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 26. Look what he says. For God giveth to man that which is better in his sight, wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather up and to heap up riches, that he may give to him that is better before God. All the wealth that has been accumulated by the millionaires of this world today will be given to the saints in the future. It really isn't our job to stack up coins now. It's all being done for us, you see, who are those that will receive the better from God. 
And Solomon reaches the climax, really, of his little exhortation section here. This is not the end of the exhortation section, but it's the climax of this, this portion of it, this phase of it, in chapter 7 and verse 12, speaking of wisdom. The thing, of course, that he had more himself, that he had more than any of the other virtues which he has mentioned in these previous verses. But he was troubled. He's listed all of these things, sorrow better than mourning, a name better than ointment, wisdom better than folly. All of these things he's mentioned, and he's got to this climax about wisdom being better than any inheritance. But he hasn't got to the end. He's upset because there's something still missing. Look at verse 19. Wisdom, he says, strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in a city. It's enormously powerful. It is a defense like there is no defense. But there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Wisdom is wonderful. Wisdom is enormously powerful, but who can live it? Who can do it? Who can, who can match the caliber of lifestyle that wisdom demands? You know, in his famous prayer, in First of Kings chapter 8, when he dedicated the temple, and he, he had animals on the altar, and he prayed a long prayer to God before all the people. In First of Kings chapter 8, in verse 46 of that chapter, he said, There is no man that sinneth not. In the early days, after he built the temple, he was very, very aware of that. In verse 38 of that chapter, he said, Every man possesses the plague of his own heart. That's what he calls it. In 1 Kings 8 and verse 38, the plague of his own heart. And so now what he commences in this chapter in verse 25 is an intensive investigation. You look at the, look at the intensity of chapter 7 and verse 35 of Ecclesiastes. I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek the reason and to know. Look how hard he's trying. I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. Why have we got the best answers in the world but nobody does them? What can we do? This, this, is, this is illogical. This is utterly foolish. Why aren't we living the wisdom we know? And from verse 25 to the end of the chapter, you've got an enormous personal confession now from Solomon about what he's experienced in his own life. You can tell that, you see, in verse 25, he says, look, I'm going to search this, know that, seek this, reason this, understand this. Verse 26, he says, I find. Verse 27, behold, I have found. Verse 28, which yet my soul seeketh, I find not. Again in that verse, have I found. The last words, I have not found. Verse 29, lo, this have I found. You see, Now he's examining things and he's looking everywhere, turning over every stone to find the answer to this problem. He's got to wisdom, which is the pinnacle of what this life can offer, short of mortality. But there's a problem. We haven't solved sin. Sin is still more powerful than wisdom, if you allow it to be. A wise man can still be rolled over by sin, as we found in chapter 7 and verse 7. What do we do? I applied my heart to know it, he says. You look at verse 25, you've got this little three. I applied my heart to know. The margin says, I and my heart compassed. 
I went round and round in circles. I kept asking myself the same question and back came the same answer. I want to know the answer. Round and round he goes. One thing he says, one thing, I can understand everything else. I'm as wise, I'm the wisest man walking on the face of the earth, but I can't understand sin. I can't understand why I sin. And now we make some deeply personal comments. Verse 26. I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands is bands. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her. But the sinner shall be taken by her. And didn't he know that well? Didn't he know that? He escaped, I believe, in the nick of time by the skin of his teeth. Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account, looking through the issues one at a time, round and round in circles, adding up the issue, uh, adding up the problem. Which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among a thousand have I not found, he says. A woman, in fact, I read it wrong, a woman among all those. And you'll notice the margin, I believe, is correct the way it interprets this. Where he says here, a woman among all those, you'll have a little note if your Bible's like mine, and a reference on that cue to 1 Kings 11 verse 3. You see, he had a thousand wives. And he looked amongst those thousand wives for a woman of the kind of caliber he's just described in the first 12 verses of this chapter. And he couldn't find one. And no surprise, because the Sarahs and the Hannahs and the Ruths were not amongst that thousand, were they? These were trophies. These were political wives. These were wives he married because they looked nice. Every country, every race, every religion, many of them not even in the truth. He couldn't find, of the thousand wives that Solomon had, he couldn't find one of any virtue. And no surprise. But he said, that's one issue. Even amongst mankind, male kind, you might find one amongst a thousand who remotely lives the caliber of life that these verses demand. And there's a problem. Because as much wisdom as we have, he says, mankind is seldom anything like what he ought to be. Verse 29, this only have I found. God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. It's not God's fault. It's not God's fault, brothers and sisters. You can see what Solomon's looking for, you can't, can't you? You can see what he's looking for. He's looking for the next better thing. He's got to the best thing he can name, and it's wisdom. And he's looking for something better than wisdom, because wisdom doesn't help us, ultimately. Because we can't live it. We can't put these things into practice. Sin takes over. Mankind's got a problem. And even amongst the best men in his kingdom, he's scarcely rewarded with one among a thousand, he says. And he's looking for this answer. Round and round, looking for the answer. But the phrase, one among a thousand, is a giveaway. Because that's a phrase which is used of redemption. In Job chapter 9 and verse 3, Job says that man cannot answer God, one among a thousand. In Job 33 and verse 23, Job says, Is there one among a thousand that can show unto man God's uprightness? This, this is language which is used in the, in the wisdom books of Scripture, but for the subject of redemption, you see, 
Solomon's looking for the better man. He's hunting here high and low, round and round, overturning every stone, looking for the better man. And he can't find him. He can't find him because there's none like, them, none like that among men. No man lives these things like he should. But you know, there is an answer. You come across to the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Solomon did know of this answer. It is likely that he wrote the Song of Solomon before he wrote Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was the, was the book that he wrote late in his life. Songs was what he wrote, it appears early in his life. So he's speaking of the subject of marriage. But as you'll be aware, brothers, this is a great type. And the bridegroom of this book is none other in type than the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at chapter 5, verse 10. My beloved is white and ruddy, the cheapest among 10,000. But it's not 10,000. The word thousand here is not the same word thousand. The word ten doesn't mean ten. This means myriads. It's sometimes translated 10,000 times 10,000. My bridegroom is the cheapest among myriads. He's the cheapest among everyone. There's no man like that bridegroom. And what do you know about that bridegroom, brothers and sisters? Well, you know he's got a good name, don't you? Because he's got a name above every name. You know that he regards his death greater than his birth because the greatest conquest in the history of the world was made at his death. You know that he values mourning more than feasting. Because the greatest feast he ever celebrated was the commemoration of his death. You know that he values sorrow more than laughter. Twice in scripture we read of the Lord Jesus Christ weeping. You won't read of him laughing anywhere in scripture. You know that he regards wisdom more than folly. Morning by morning it tells us in the prophets, he opened his ear to his father. Never ever ever listened to the counsel of fools. You know that he regards the end more than the beginning. Because what were his last mortal words? John 19 verse 30. It's finished. It's finished. And finally, wisdom more than money. Wisdom more than an inheritance. He was born to be a king, of course. He never ever took the throne. Never ever took the throne. Instead, he disseminated wisdom like it's never ever been shown before. And he was furious with man's refusal to accept that wisdom. They asked him for a sign, you know, in Matthew chapter 12. And what was the answer when they asked him for a sign? The queen of the south. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment against this generation. Because she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, he said, a greater than Solomon is here. Wisdom far, far transcended the value of inheritance. And if there could have been any doubt whatsoever as to his calibre, the Apostle Paul obliterates it when he comments on the status of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews. Because you know what he says? You know what the Apostle says? All the, way, the great theme all the way through Hebrews that Paul makes of the Lord Jesus Christ? Better than angels. Possessing a better priesthood. Offering a better hope. Confirming a better covenant. Making better promises. Offering a better sacrifice. Providing a better reward. Gaining a better resurrection. For all those that seek him in truth. 
And as the Apostle concludes the catalogue of the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11, which I might add includes women, he says in Hebrews 11 and verse 40, God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect.